It is good to be with you this morning, and it's good to us to be together as well. It's great to see you. It's great to have visitors, and we rejoice in that as we come together to offer our praise and our reverence to our God, our Creator, to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Knowledge. Knowledge is is enlightening. Uh, It can be very powerful as well as liberating. And while knowledge can be very helpful and it can be very comforting, it is also such a thing that it fills us with wonder as well as with fear. A pursuit of knowledge alone... The sole pursuit of knowledge alone can actually leave a person, can leave a man empty. It can leave a man unfulfilled and unsatisfied. All the knowledge that is in this world, which worldly people have accumulated, has has not necessarily made the world, has, has not necessarily made people better persons. In some cases, I'm sure, as you observe your culture, as you look around you, in some cases, in some circumstances, perhaps your discernment would be that their knowledge has actually led them so that their character has worsened. Knowledge, or for that matter, the lack of knowledge, can actually be a man's downfall but the right knowledge the right knowledge is beneficial and it is such it must be tempered though because we must use knowledge correctly it must be sought for the right reasons we all know that knowledge can be misused We also know that knowledge can be abused. And yet, our God, our Creator, our Redeemer exhorts us with passages like these in 2 Peter 1.5 when the Apostle Peter pins the Spirit's words to saints that are scattered. He says, applying all diligence in your faith. Supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. So knowledge is important. Or as Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verse 17, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God's exhortation here and elsewhere for us to increase in knowledge, to grow in knowledge, to mature in knowledge ought to be diligently sought, yes. But it must be sought so that we may understand. It's not for the sake of knowledge in and of itself, but it's knowledge that is designed to give us understanding of what the will of our Lord and of our God is so as we continue to build on the theme that i had selected this year that of maturing spiritually growing spiritually in 2021 
Let us focus a little bit this morning on the idea of seeking this knowledge that God wants us to have. But God warns us about it, though. It's interesting how the Spirit, in revealing the mind of God, actually warns us about some things about knowledge. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, we see that ignorance of God is inexcusable. It's in the context of the creation, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly evident. He mentions two of them, his power and his nature. And he goes on to say, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Ignorance of God, ignorance that there is a creator is inexcusable. And so God warns us about a lack of knowledge, the lack of the right kind of knowledge. Or in Romans chapter 10, where it talks there, Paul admonishing saints, and particularly as he reflects upon his Jewish brethren and how he, his prayer is that they, that they may be saved. But he goes on to talk about some of those individuals in verse 3 and says, he says, not knowing about God's righteousness... And seeking to establish their own righteousness, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So ignorance of God's righteousness is spiritually devastating. It's ruinous to us. Or over in Acts chapter 17, when you look there in the journey of the Apostle Paul, He is in the city of of Athens proclaiming God. And as he's bringing his teaching and the message to that audience, you know, to its more climactic end and urging them to respond to that message correctly. He basically says, ignorance will not exempt you from your accountability to the God that you do not know. And so in verse seven, chapter 17, verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. So God does warn us about knowledge or the lack of knowledge, as well as he warns us about the fact that knowledge at the same time can puff us up as brethren. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 and, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, to those saints of long ago, and to us as well today, he says, you know, concerning the things sacrificed to idols, he says, we know we have knowledge. We, we all have this knowledge about this. But he goes on to say, knowledge puffs up, love edifies. If he, anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. Or over in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, as Paul is introducing this letter to the saints at that church in that city, he reminds them there that worldly knowledge often considers the word of the cross as foolishness. To those in the world who are perishing, they look at the cross, they look at Christ, Christ crucified. It is foolishness to them. So God warns us about knowledge. But it's important. It is essential 
you know, to our walk with God, to our walk in Jesus Christ. But knowledge without understanding, though, is vain. Knowledge without understanding is vain. If you turned and looked in one of your English modern dictionaries, you would find some definition like this for the word knowledge. It is the body of facts and principles accumulated, or it is the acquaintance or familiarity with those facts, or even all that has been perceived or grasped by the mind. And so we can understand, okay, that has some you know, aspect and allows us to understand what knowledge is, is all about. But if you looked at the Greek words that are translated knowledge, you've got a couple you know, words here. The first one is your basic word that ha- primarily has the idea of seeking to know something. Yeah. And so that kind of carries that idea. Now, in English, it would be the word knowledge. Yeah. So this variation, you may not always be evident to us, but it really has the idea of inquiry, investigation. You want to know. And so you're going to investigate, you're going to study, you're going to search. Another Greek word for knowledge, which is very similar, it is just an expansion of that same root word, carries with the idea of a knowledge that has a fullness to it. It's a fuller kind of knowledge, and so therefore it's a fuller discernment. It is a fuller recognition, which suggests the idea a a greater participation by the knower in the object of what is, what is known. And so in that case, there is a much more powerfully in, powerful influence that affects that person's life. So those are just definitions. You know, that's all that is. But it's interesting, when you think about knowledge, Satan knows God. Satan knows God. If you recall the scenes in the book of Job, and as uh, uh, interesting that is, and the questions that, that those scenes cause us to ask ourselves, and that we don't have all the answers to. But the fact is, you have in those scenes, it says the sons of God presented themselves before Jehovah, and Satan was among them. Satan knows God, unquestionably. He knows God because he has seen God. Satan knows God. And yet Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, the one who was deity in the flesh, Jesus Christ in John chapter 8, verse 44, describes Satan, our adversary, our enemy, as the father of lies. So yes, Satan knows God on the one hand because he has seen him. He has been in his presence, but we are told that he is the father of lies. He is a liar in his very nature. And so that one would be in stark opposition to God. He knows him, but he is an opponent to God. He's an opponent to our creator. He is an enemy to our heavenly father, a, a father to, you know, who is described to us in Hebrews, 8, Hebrews 6 verse 18 as one who does not lie, as one who cannot lie. And yet, Satan knows God. 
Satan even knows scripture. You recall the temptation of Jesus. One of those places found in Matthew chapter four. You're familiar with that. And in those three temptations that are recorded, that's not all of them, but the ones that are recorded, he actually used scripture to tempt Jesus. Satan even knows scripture. He knows God, he knows scripture, but he misuses it. Why does he misuse it? He misuses it for his evil schemes. You think about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. It is in chapter 2 where it starts that it describes how, you know, know, we were all dead in our sins. And it describes to us that spiritual death, particularly in verse 2, you know, when he speaks of how, you know, you have this spirit of disobedience that prevailed, prevails among humanity, among mankind, because the prince of the power of the air, which is a simply another description of Satan, of the devil. So you think, here's, here's Satan, he knows God, but he, he's a liar. He knows scripture, but he misuses it for his own own evil schemes. And so what's his objective? What is he trying to do? Well, his objective is to spread a spirit of disobedience among all of humanity. Any living soul that bears the image of the creator, and all do, his objective with the knowledge that he has of God and of Scripture, is to create disobedience. Knowledge to Satan is a weapon. Knowledge to Satan is a weapon. It's a weapon for destruction. Now, God is not calling us to that kind of knowledge, obviously. But God is calling us to knowledge. He is calling us to grow in knowledge. He's calling us to seek that knowledge diligently. So you think about you know, our, our key verses today in, in Peter and in Ephesians, where we are called to increase knowledge. We are called to add greater knowledge to our character. It is not just an expectation of our Father for us to accumulate facts about people and places. Now, those facts can be beneficial. Those facts can be helpful. But it's not just about, okay, now I can play Bible trivia and I can beat everybody. No, that's not the purpose of it. Neither is it the fact so that, you know, we, you know, I can have this amazing ability to recite quotations from the scriptures. And maybe I can even recite to you chapters. I can't do that. But that's beneficial. There is a great benefit of, of engraving the scriptures on our memory, on our heart, so that we can speak it by memory. But the knowledge that God is calling us is not just for that sake, so I can regurgitate you know, these scriptures to others. Now, God wants us to grow in knowledge, but to grow with that knowledge with a sense of understanding what it's all about. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1 
as Paul directing the evangelist Timothy about the work of an evangelist and what he needs to be teaching and doing, he says to, to him and to us still today, he says, we know there in verse 8, we know that the law is good. Any law that God has ever given to mankind at any time in history, his law was good. We are talking about Old Testament laws or New Testament laws. Any law of God is good. And he says, so we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Law can be misused. Law can be abused in the method that it is implemented, in the, in the message in that it is, is relayed. And so he says, we know that it's good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else. Whatever else. This is not an all-encompassing list. You know, humanity is constantly trying to find new ways to you know, basically masticize evil. So whatever else would, you know, would be similar to these kind of things, he says, and he says, that is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. God's laws must be used lawfully. It must be, they must be used in accord with what God's laws direct us to do, but also what God's laws prohibit us to do. We must use it the right way. Different laws of God are not going to and will not and do not contradict one another. Now, man can use a law and use it in a way that contradicts other truth that's from God. But God does not. He does not lie. He is not a deceiver. But his laws do judge us and those laws do convict us. You know, Peter as well. Peter as well warned about how the untaught the untaught can and do distort the writings of Christ's apostles. In 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 15, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for the things, talking about the judgment to come. In 2 Peter, you know, he focuses a lot on the fact that there is a judgment to come. There will be an end that will come one day, and all of humanity is going to stand before their creator. And so knowing this, that this is to, to occur sometime in the future, we don't know when, but God doesn't lie. Jesus doesn't lie. And so it is the truth that there is a judgment to come. And he says, you know, so knowing these things you know, and looking for these things, he says, be diligent. You know, Peter's right to Christians. He said, you need to be diligent, Christians, to be found by him, that is by God in Christ, by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. You know, why has, has that end not come yet? Because God still desires souls to be saved. God wants people to come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. He wants men to repent, turn from the evil, and turn to righteousness. So he says, regard that patience as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul. Now here's Peter talking about Paul's work. 
Our brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him. The Spirit gave Peter wisdom. The Spirit gave Paul wisdom. And he says, he says, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. So now he's talking about what did Paul write? He says, which he wrote to you as also in all his letters. You know, Paul wrote letters to churches and letters to, to individuals. And so Peter, you know, Peter said, you know, here, you need to consider what Paul has written. It is by divine wisdom. Speaking in them, he goes on to say, verse 16, in these letters, speaking in them of these things. Paul wrote about the end. Paul wrote about the judgment to come. Speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. There are some things that are harder to understand than other things. And Peter recognizes that. But he goes on to say, which, so you've got some things that Paul and others have written that may be a little bit more difficult to understand and comprehend. And he said, but he goes on to say, but which the untaught and the unstable distort. So he's talking about individuals who distort the writings of the apostles, particularly here in the context of Paul's writings. There are those in the world then and still today who distort the writings of the apostles. And he goes, as do they also the rest of the Christians, to their own destruction. That's why knowledge alone is not the key. It's knowledge with understanding. Without understanding, people are more likely or more easily led astray. If I don't understand what I know, if I don't understand how it applies and how it's to be implemented, then I can be led astray by those who would distort those writings. So growing in Christ's grace and growing in Christ's knowledge is essential but since it's essential in order to guard ourselves against the errors of men. Because Peter goes on to say, as he concludes this letter of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. It's for that reason that Paul, going back to his writing to Timothy, would urge him in regard to the importance of equipping or training himself to accurately handle the word of truth. We must know what the scriptures teach. We must know what the scriptures, for that matter, does not teach. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it It reads, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be shamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We must know what is written, but we also must know how it applies to us. We must know what and how to carry out God's will. It's not about what our will, it's all about God's will. We need to know what it is and how we're to carry that out and then in turn teach it to others, that same sanctifying truth that will save them. It is for that reason it's so important that we understand the concept that Paul expresses in, in Ephesians. You know, he says, understand the will of the Lord. You need to understand, not just know, you need to understand the Lord's will. How do we go about doing that? What can help us understand God's will? And I've got four suggestions 
that help us in this journey, in this diligent search to grow in knowledge, add knowledge to our character, but do so with understanding. The first one is based upon what is stated by the Spirit in the writing of James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 25, where the admonition is that doers of this law of liberty are the ones that are going to be blessed. Doers of the law of liberty. Verse 25, reading, one who looks intently, one who looks, not just looks, but he looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and, so not look alone, but look and abides by it, Not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. He'll be blessed in what he does because he's doing the perfect law of liberty. So we ask ourselves, do do we want to be blessed of the Lord? Do do we desire all of those spiritual blessings that are found in Christ? Is is that what my longing is? Is that that what I desire? Well, then I need to be a doer of what that law says, what that law teaches. And our deeds, therefore, must reflect what? What must our deeds reflect? Our, Our deeds must reflect that we have examined God's law, not man's law. We've examined God's law and in turn are now keeping those laws. That's what our lives should reflect. That we have studied, we have examined, we have searched the law of God, the law of liberty, and now I am doing what that law says. Now, you know, we are not here according to the Spirit. We're not being instructed that, you know, to examine carefully all the things that are in the world that men teach. Now, there is, there is benefit in, in understanding and knowing the opposition and understanding, you know, why something is erroneous. But here in this exhortation of the Holy Spirit, James, the writer, says to us saints that we need to look intently into this law of liberty and abide by it. You know, all the writings and all the dogmas of men are not going to bring God's blessings. What brings God's blessings is doing what the law of liberty reveals what the law of liberty says. And so if I read you know, God's law, I, I read this inspired message, but then, then I turn around and I do, do what I want to do. I've read it, but I'm still doing what I want to do. Don't expect the Savior's blessings. That's not how we get the Lord's blessings, is reading it and then do what I want to do. No, it's doing the law of liberty, abiding in it, because I've looked intently in it. I've examined it. And so, yes, I know it, but, I, but now I have a greater understanding of it. Well, whose law is this law of liberty? 
Well, even in James 1, it begins to expound on what the law of law of liberty is really about. This law of liberty actually is the soul-saving word of God. That's what it is. The soul-saving word of God is this law of liberty that we need to be looking in, that we need to be examining very carefully so that we are assuring ourselves that we are abiding in it, we're keeping it, and our life is reflecting that. And so you look there in verse 21, just a couple of verses previously to our reading. And he says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted. Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but prove yourselves doers, doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And as then in verse 25, he expounds on that more about how do I go about proving myself to be a doer of this word when it's been implanted that will save my soul. So the law of liberty is the word that James writes about that we're exhorted to obey upon hearing it. I have to have the ears to hear what God says. I have to have the ears to hear what Jesus says. I have to have the ears to hear what the gospel, the New Testament reveals. But upon hearing it, I need to obey it. And that message, that message is able to save your soul. Because it is the gospel of Christ. It is the word of Christ. It is the sound teaching of God's son. Romans 1.16, when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Why he's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus? Because he knew what it was. He understood what it was. And he knew the power in it. The power of that message is that it will save those who are true believers. In, in Romans chapter 6, verse, verse 17 Paul, again, makes reference to the message, and he, he gives thanks to God there in the setting. He said, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, he's talking to Christians who have been converted, and they're being transformed by a law of liberty, by a soul-saving message. And he says, I, I thank God that that's what you were. You were a slave of sin. That's your past. He says, you became obedient. And you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. That's the law of liberty that James is writing about that we need to be doers of if we want to be blessed. It is the soul-saving message of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Or as the Apostle John writes in 2 John verse 9, he says, it is the teaching you know, and adherence to this, you know, this doctrine of Christ that brings us into fellowship. If we want a relationship, if we want a right relationship, a right fellowship with God our Father and God the Son our Savior, if, I, if that's what I long to have, then I have to do what? I have to understand that I need to hear it. I need to obey it because that's the message that will save me. Because of that, the law of Moses with its Ten Commandments cannot save you. 
The law of Moses with his Ten Commandments cannot justify you and me before God. In Galatians chapter 5, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, Paul is writing to a number of churches in, a re, in the region of Galatia. And those churches of Christ are being bombarded by the influence of Judaism. And there is probably a number of the saints in those churches that were converted out of Judaism. And so they're, they're being attacked by men teaching things that are not in harmony with the gospel of the Son of God. And in Galatians chapter 5, reading the first four verses, Paul says this, by the direction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Christ has freed us. In the context of Galatians, he's not saying he has freed us and given us liberty to sin whatever sin I want to commit. No, that's not what he's talking about. What kind of freedom is he talking about? Well, let's read. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And so you got a contrast between freedom in Christ, with Christ, versus a yoke of slavery. Verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Now you begin to see the context. Circumcision, the mandate, the requirement of circumcision upon God's people of old is part of the old covenant. It's part of God's relationship with Abraham and all his descendants. And when you study the New Testament, you recognize that the, the, the mandating of circumcision not, you know, on, uh, uh, or the attempt to mandate circumcision on all male Christians was a problem that the early church faced. And so Paul is saying, he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. You know, you do not you know, be subject to a yoke of slavery. And if you turn to circumcision and say, you have to be circumcised to be in Christ. You have to be circumcised to be a saved soul. So then Christ is not going to benefit you. Verse 3, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. Circumcision is part of the law of Moses. And if that's the case, it says then, verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law. He's talking about the law of Moses. Not the law of liberty that James writes about. He's talking about the law of Moses that included circumcising a number of other decrees and regulations. He says, if that's what you're trying to find justification by, if you're trying to be right with God through the law of Moses with his Ten Commandments, he says, then you're going to sever yourself, you're going to cut yourself off from Christ, you are seeking to be justified, and you have fallen from grace. And so in apostolic times, and still today, there are some religious people who do seek to find justification before God by relying on certain laws that are now obsolete. Hebrews 8 talks about how Jeremiah prophesied the day will come that God will make a new covenant with his people. And it will be a different covenant from the one that he made with them at Mount Sinai. 
And Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He's not the mediator of the old covenant. He's a mediator of the new covenant. And so grace in Christ does not come from keeping the commandments of the Old Testament. And so we need to understand the, the Lord's will. I need to be a doer of the law of liberty if, I'm, if I seek God's blessing. And that law of liberty is the gospel, the message of the Son of God and everything that that entails. But the law of Moses, which is divine scripture, it is a divine edict, but that law that was given to the nation of Israel of old, that law cannot save us today. That law cannot bring about us into a justified relationship. Only the one faith in Jesus Christ can do that. And so Galatians chapter 3. Paul, in talking about you know, the change of covenants, the change of laws, the change of systems, says to us in Galatians 3, verse 24, Therefore the law, speaking of the law of Moses, that was given at Mount Sinai. He says, therefore the law has become a tutor to lead us, to bring us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Therefore, we're no longer under that law for we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The old law has been fulfilled. The old law is no longer needed to save us, to bring us into a right relationship with God, to direct us in holiness. No, the law of liberty does that. And so when Christ came, the old covenant was done away with, and he became a mediator of a new covenant, and that covenant is a law of liberty. And so therefore the writings, excuse me, Therefore, the writings of Christ's apostles and Christ's New Testament prophets are God-breathed scriptures. You know, these letters that Peter mentioned in his letter uh, that Paul wrote, those letters, whether by Peter or Paul or John, whoever, these letters are God-breathed scriptures. They're not just a letter from some preacher. I may write you a letter and it may contain quotations from scripture, but my letter is not a God-breathed letter. But the letters of the New Testament are. Paul even makes a very bold statement in the 14th chapter, verse 37. He says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet, if anyone thinks he is spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write. Let him recognize if you think you're so spiritual and you think you're a prophet, he says, then you need to recognize what I write are are the Lord's commandments. They're not Paul's commandments. They're not a preacher's commandments. He said, the things I write are the Lord's commandments. Why is that? 
Well, because as we see in the Gospel of John chapter 16, you know, there in that upper room as Jesus is preparing them for his, his death and his resurrection and his ascension and promises them that he, you know, he is leaving, but the comforter, the help, helper will come and he tells them who that is. He says, it is the spirit of truth. And one of the things he says to them about the spirit of truth is found there in verse 13. He says, you know, when he, when he, he's a person of the Godhead. When he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. We need to understand what the will of the Lord is. We understand that these are the doers of that law that are blessed. And the law of liberty is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not the law of Moses with the Ten Commandments. But it does include the writings, the letters, the epistles of Christ's apostles and prophets. And it's because they were guided and directed by the Holy Spirit that Jesus prayed to his Father whom the Father sent to them so they would be able to preach the truth. They would be able to remember all that Jesus taught. They'd be able to testify correctly the things of God. The words that they wrote are by the direction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Paul is making a, a, the same argument in this, to the same church, just in a different way when he says, now we have received, we received not the, 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 the spirit of the world. He says, we have, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. We have received the spirit. What spirit? Well, it's the very spirit that Jesus promised. That's who we receive. We see the spirit who... Not what? Who is from God? So that we may know the things freely given to us by God. What things did the apostles know? What things did the New Testament prophets know? They knew the things of God. The very things that they were given to know. How? By the Holy Spirit. Which things, he says in verse 13, which we speak not in words taught by human wisdom. Remember what Peter said about the wisdom of Abraham that, Peter, you know, that Paul had? He says, no, the words we're using are not according to human wisdom. He said, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And so when, when we're studying and growing in knowledge of God's word, we need to understand some things about that will. That we need to be doers of it. And it is that law of liberty that's going to save us, not the, not the laws of the Old Testament. Even though they were God's laws, and they served the purpose that God gave them to serve. They did what God intended for those laws to do. But now we have other writings. Writings by apostles and prophets of Jesus Christ. And that's why we are admonished, for example, in one of such letters in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2.15, where we're told to hold firmly to the teaching and the traditions which you are revealed in the New Testament. It's just interesting how, how Paul words that to the, the church at Thessalonica. 
So then, brethren, stand firm. Stand firm and hold. Hold. That means some action, doesn't it? Hold to the traditions which you were taught. So these are not just traditions that they, they just thought up themselves. These are things that they were taught, things that were passed down to them. He says, you need to hold on to those things that have been passed down to you. How? Whether by word of mouth or by letter from us, that's what you need to hold to. So in 2021, diligently seek knowledge. Add knowledge to your virtue, to your moral excellence. But don't be foolish. Understand the will of the Lord, the will of the Lord. So that you can fully comprehend that the apostolic message that is contained in the New Testament of our Bibles is the revelation of Christ's authority. Knowing what the Bible says will do us no good. It will do us no good unless... Unless we are diligently adhering to its truth. So seek to understand. Seek to understand that true knowledge that is in Christ so that you can live by it every day. Not just on Sundays. As we follow the precepts and the traditions that direct us in how we should worship. But also, we follow and adhere to the precepts and the decrees that direct us on how we are to live on Monday and Tuesday or any day that we have breath to get up and live. The gospel of Christ reveals to us that it is Jesus who is God's son and is only the son of God who can and has atoned for your sins. The very sins that alienate you right now from your God, and if not corrected and cleansed by the blood that was shed on Calvary, will condemn you eternally to hell. Understand what the will of the Lord is. Jesus came to save, but he is judge as well. And he can have no fellowship with sin. And so he calls all sinners to believe that he is the son of God. And with that faith, to be willing to confess it with their mouth before others unashamedly. That they believe he is the son of God. And along with that confession to turn, to repent from the sins in their past, in their life. To turn away from that life of this world and begin living it for God, living it for Jesus, and to begin so by burying, immersing ourselves in water according to Jesus' commandment so that by faith we're raised to walk in newness of life and we become God's workmanship now, not our own, because we're growing in knowledge with understanding of what the Lord's will is. For each one of us. If we can help you any way spiritually this morning, we invite you, we encourage you to come forward, make your wishes known while we stand and sing the song that's been selected.